Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. Just the idea that I had some choice over my life really began an 18-month journey of empowerment, going, right, well, if I have choice, then I wouldn't choose this. And then the question was asked by my trainer, well, if you don't want this, what do you want instead? I realised I'd focused all my energy on what I didn't want. I don't want to be angry. I don't want to be tired. I don't want to be sad. I don't want, I don't want, I don't want. I find this with clients a lot. They're very clear on what they don't want, but they're very vague about what they do want. There's no two ways about the fact that 2020 has not been the year any of us thought it would be. No matter who you are or what plans you were making six months ago, They've definitely been postponed or altered, if not downright smashed to smithereens. Health experts the world over warn that in the wake of the COVID-19 crisis, invariably comes the mental health crisis, as we grapple with the shocking experience of losing complete control over our lives at a moment's notice. I'm Michelle Laurie, and this is the Nitty Gritty Committee, conversations about the guts and the glory of life. And today, we meet Lisa Westgate, an internationally best-selling author and life coach who just five years ago was stuck to her couch, unable to work, newly diagnosed with PTSD. Lisa now says she's outgrown her PTSD, which is not a word I've ever heard used in this context before, and I've got a feeling it's probably controversial in some circles. So I thought finding out why she chose to use this word was a good place to start. Yeah, I'm really glad they picked up on that specific word. I use that word really deliberately. So my little ebook that I put out was three keys to outgrow trauma rather than, you know, what do people usually say? They're living with it or they're coping with it or they're sort of, it's like everyone else around them has to learn to live with it. You know, even when I'm interviewing people with PTSD, we all adjust to it. That is the expectation that, okay, well, your loved one is now being diagnosed with PTSD due to like a uniform service or military or a car accident or a sexual assault or whatever. There's like any reason you can develop it. Yeah. They've got this and now you all have to get used to the new way. And that's really the narrative that um, I guess I disrupt <laughs> is this idea that the that's the story I got. The story I got was here's your label, here's what you've got now, you know, we've ticked the boxes, you've got PTSD, anxiety, depression, um, the um, mental health shit house trifecta I refer to it. As. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, awesome. Yeah. Um, and it's important to note the anxiety and depression you get with PTSD is not the same as like 
clinical depression or generalized anxiety disorder. They're kind of quite interrelated with the PTSD. So yeah, I guess I got that narrative too. I got that story. It's like, this is what you've got. The best you can hope for is take your meds, avoid your triggers, which is like life. Um, and just try and learn to live your best life while managing all of this. And also people who love you have to learn that as well, right? People who love you and who live with you have to learn to manage that within the relationship that they have with you. Theoretically, yeah. Yeah. Doesn't always work out like that. I married a sadist. um, So he (laughs) thought it was very entertaining to uh, sneak up on me in the shower or um, like ninja feet behind me and then just start talking. So he thought it was very amusing to watch my hypervigilance response and hit the roof and that for his own amusement, he's, he's a sicko. He loves me deeply, but also he thought it was funny. You're smiling telling me that story. So did you think it was funny? Look, it probably, I think it was a bit like unofficial exposure therapy. Like he just kept doing it, you know, and I was like, okay, so my response decreased and I'm, he doesn't do it anymore because it's not fun because I've got rid of that response. So (laughs) we do still have a toaster that beeps when it gets to the top instead of pops because I used to hit the roof when the toaster would pop. I'd just like, what my boy was that? Um, so it just raises the toast gently and goes beep, and I'm like, oh, that's oh. that's more tolerable um, because I was in that that hyper vigilance phase. So yeah, I I got told that too. This is the best you can hope for. This is the best it's going to get. And I tried that on for three or four months. Um, okay, this is me now, and I put my little victim jacket on and I sat on the couch, and the world revolved around me. And my husband got my kids off to school, and um, my two, three year old at the time just sort of, you know, functioned with the husk of me on the couch. Um, it always reminds me the visual I get is the cicada shells, you know, mm. after they've flown down, they're sort of just clinging to the tree, and that's really what I was like on the couch. It was like, it looks, it looks a lot like Lisa, looks like mum. Um, but really the, I wasn't really there. I wasn't present for sure. So I tried it on for a few months and it took me three, four months to realize that this was not what I wanted for my life. I got put on a disability pension at 34 years old. Um, I kind of intended to live at least another 34 years, if not longer, and thought, well, I don't want to spend them on the couch. So what other choices do I have? And so that's when I started looking for something else. I was like, okay, so so managing my symptoms and avoiding my triggers is not a viable option for me. What other alternatives do I have? And that's sort of, I think um, I always pay homage to my my stubbornness and curiosity was what got me to start looking for something else. It's like, okay, well this, this isn't really good enough. This is not okay. Yeah. And I always had this idea that like, why there was a point in my life, most of my life where I didn't have PTSD Mm. and now I do. So surely I can again, not have it. Like to me, that was always, that made sense. Like, well, surely I can not have it again if I previously not had it. Um, but, yeah, the, the Western medicine model, the white coat model was um, like, you've got this for life, this is the best you can hope for. And so I had to look elsewhere for an alternative route out, a pathway out because, yeah, that was, that's all they had. Here's your meds. Um, maybe, you know, try a few different forms of um, 
talk-based therapies? I, um, I'm a big believer in that idea that the first five or seven years of your life really shape you. Uh, and the reason I believe in that is because I know that that shaped me, that the first that those first years of my life were very uh, loving, very nurturing, and they gave me the confidence that really got me, still gets me through whatever happens. I just have this strength and confidence, no matter what anybody is telling me, that that I, I will be okay. So to what do you attribute that attitude that you have, that even through PTSD, through everything, that mm. you just got off the couch? Did you have a similar early childhood? Yeah, look, I mean, we've got a lot of we've got a lot of evidence. You know, now we understand that those formative years before eight years old is where you you learn your beliefs and your value systems, and that's you know you're either modelling what your parents do or what they don't do, and you'll either follow them or you'll swing the pendulum the other way, and you're like, well, I'm never going to behave like that, and you do the opposite, and that's really those formative years. So now that my son's eight, I'm like. Done. Yeah, um, see ya. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's it. It's it's in there now. You know? Um yeah, look, I did. I came from a really um it was always a loving home and it, it still is. Um, my parents are pretty incredible. My dad worked a lot, um, so I come from a real medical family. Um and so yeah, he wasn't always necessarily around, but I knew that he loved me. Um, and I think I've always had that thirst for knowledge and that curiosity about the world I live in and my place in it. I remember having my 16 year old version of a, um, of a nervous breakdown of like, what's my place in the world and what's my purpose for existence? Yeah, me too. Yeah. The existential crisis. Yeah. Yeah. Teenage years. Yes. Yeah. That's it. And I ended up in a, in a psychiatrist's office um, at 17, missing, missing school because I was dealing with these like big concepts. So I think I've always been curious in that and I'm, I'm a perpetual learner, not very academic to be clear, um, <laughs> but a perpetual learner. Um, so I'm the sort of person that's got bookmarks in like five different books at <laughs> one time because I'm like, but I want to know about that as well. Um, and my mum credits me with being stubborn since birth because um, I was born breech. So she's like, well, you were always going to do shit your way. <laughs> Feet first. She's like, yep, you just come out. Well, it's ass first, actually. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so mum's like, that is pretty much how you've presented yourself to the world ever since. Like, if you don't like it, you can kiss it. And I'm like, yeah, that's pretty accurate, you know. like, Cute. And the people that I'm drawn to are a bit like that. They're a bit like, I'm going to do this my way. And if you can't, you know, if that doesn't work for you, then, then you're not my people and that's cool. I was thinking about who I look to for inspiration, who I look up to as, you know, people that are speaking their truth and, you know, I always end up at the same people. It's like Dave Chappelle, Bill Hicks, yeah. you know, like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and recently Hannah Gadsby, you know, people that stand up there, they've got something to say and they're going to say it their way in the way that they want to communicate it. But there is this undercurrent of wanting to make the world a better place by doing that, you know, not being divisive um, within that, but bringing their truth, but bringing it to educate or enlighten. And that's that's very aligned with sort of a hope the way that I sort of go into stuff and well the other thing about those people is that they're fearless because they are often controversial 
they are people who are bringing their truth, but their truth is a truth that not everybody wants to hear, not everybody is ready to hear. They're using language that is, I mean, you say they're not divisive, but oftentimes they, they do upset a lot of people with their, you know, the way that they present their truth. And uh, <clears throat> as I say, their truth is something that, that not everybody is ready for. So they're fearless people. Are you, are you fearless? I hadn't thought about it till you <laughs> asked that question. But well, that's what I like about all of those people. Yeah, I guess I am. I guess, you know, I, I've never been one to run with the crowd. You know, years of, years of um, school isolation will show you that. <laughs> um, you know, eating lunch by myself and doing things my way. Um, you know, I've never been with the in-group. Um, and I think as a kid and as a teenager, you really take that as a negative, you know, you really think like, I don't fit in, I'm different. Um, but I think we have the opportunity as an adult and I would hope to God by 40 that I had (laughs) learned the lesson that that's a good thing, that that's a positive is because you look at the leaders of the world in any capacity, you know, whether it's, it's politics, like Jacinda Ardern, or you've got tech, like, um, you know, the, the tech people, the, the Gateses and the, and the, um, jobs and the musks of the world, like they were not the cool kids at school. Like, you know, (laughs) you, you know, to be, to be out the front and leading and have people resonating with you and going, yeah, that makes sense. I'm going to come with you. You can't be in the middle of the pack. You've got to be you got to be out the front, the weirdo, on your own. So, so we haven't spoken about what, how you ended up with PTSD. I mean, when you talk about being pensioned and you know a moment of three months on the couch, it, it conjures up a thing that happened. Was it a thing, or was it a build-up process? How did you end up with PTSD or with the diagnosis of PTSD? It was. It was many I thought it was one thing as in I thought it was a a roughly 10-year career in ambulance I thought Mm -hmm. that's like okay well I've done that I've seen the terrible things like everybody says you know you must see some terrible things so I assumed I think like everybody else like my doctors and my family and everyone else that that was the reason for where I was at and it was only in the in the unpacking of it and in the healing journey that I realized that it was way more complex than that so for me it was I mean of course it was my time in ambulance certainly contributed and a couple of really um key jobs awful memories and um I used to call them visitors so I'd be walking down the aisle at Coles and I would get like the faces of people that had passed in traumatic circumstances in my face I would just see them in my mind's eye and I never called them flashbacks. I would refer to them as visitors. Like, man, I'm, you know, like now's not a good time. Yeah, I had a few jobs where I was getting flashbacks, I guess you would say clinically. But it was also, I, I was a subject to sexual assault at 19 and at 22. So, so raped twice at those ages. And there's a huge factor of intergenerational trauma. Mm-hmm. So we, we getting more and more evidence about the impact of intergenerational trauma in various communities. Um, all four of my grandparents are Holocaust survivors. Oh, wow. And then the real, I guess, the mental health crisis really hit when my son was about two. And what I only realised last year, actually 
due to Constance Hall, believe it or not. Yeah, yeah. Um, was that I think I also had postnatal anxiety in the mix, but because I was already not well. Um, but it was only when she spoke about it last year. I'd heard of postnatal depression and mm. I wasn't depressed, but by God, I was paranoid I was going to kill that kid. And so it was only in retrospect that I was like, you know what, I think that was also part of that awful, you know, concoction of my mental health issues. God, that is a lot, hey? Yeah, when I say it out loud. <laughs> yeah, that is tons. I mean, we've talked a lot on my other podcast, Australian True Crime, about um, generational trauma usually we tend to talk about it in the context of the stolen generation yeah I have friends who have holocaust uh, survivors in the family Rachel Berger most notably whose parents were both survivors Mm. and her brother was a doctor and so he yeah he did a lot of work in the neurology of of that for for generations yeah a friend of mine did a study about the rates of PTSD in children of Vietnam veterans right and it's higher than the general population. Is it? Why? Why is it? I mean, my imagination tells me, and my dad did not go to Vietnam, but I grew up with a lot of kids mm. whose dads did, and, I, and their dads were generally uh, grumpy. They were disconnected from the family. They didn't engage from the family. They were dads who their kids were always were scared of. Yeah. I would go to their houses for sleepovers. The kids would be scared of their dads and would say, oh, dad's home, let's go to my room. These were these dads. Mm. Mm. Um, so that, make, uh, that makes me think, is that why the kids have PTSD because their dads were grumpy or is it more to it than that? I think it probably depends if there's a genetic element. Yeah. Yeah. So it depends, I guess, whether their conception was before or after deployment. Oh. So so if they've come back and then had children, then there may be a genetic component to that. We would be after we would be after deployment because I was born in 73. So we would be the generation where these men came home. So they came home and then had kids. Yeah. 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 My dad was also, he got out of it because he was um a medical student at the time. So he also didn't go, thank goodness. Mm. Um So, yeah, look, I'm certainly not an expert in the genetics of it, but my understanding is that essentially there there is memory in DNA. Yeah. If you think about it from a maternal point of view, so in my case I consider, okay, this is going to get like a bit medical. So when a a female baby is born, we as women already actually have all our potential ovums our eggs yeah all our potential half of children are already in us when we're born as in like newborn girls yeah so if you think about it those ovums are actually created in the womb of our grandmother that's amazing yes yeah whatever trauma or cortisol release or stress or whatever our grandmothers are going through when they're pregnant with our mum that becomes the that's the potential that eventually becomes ours. I read a lot about it in terms of the African American community as well. Now that you mention it, what do you think you learnt from your grandparents? What, what do you think your parents learnt from your grandparents? It's a mixed bag. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Because so, you've got we're talking about four individuals. We're not talking about one standard experience and one standard lesson that they all brought with them. So yeah, yeah, and they all very much had their own different experiences and my parents had different experiences growing up with those 
parents. Um, so my father is very driven. He was, he came from a very strict household. So my paternal grandfather was very damaged. Um, I, he, now he would be told that he has PTSD. Um, but you know, back then it wasn't a thing, uh, or certainly wasn't labeled. Um, but yeah, so he was very stern. He was very strict. Um, there was a lot of, um, I don't know, there was a very a focus on success in terms of education and money. Funny, I'll, I'll give you an example of the two differences in their household. So when my parents, they've been together, they're nauseating and I love them. I love you, <laughs> mum and dad. Yeah. They're still together and they've been together since they're like 17, 18. And uh, it's mum's birthday on Sunday, so happy birthday, mum. Um <laughs> When they got together and they, they started living together and uh, mum would start cooking for dad, you know, as, as was of the time, mm-hmm. and um, she would plate up his food and then he would clean the plate um, and, li- and lick it clean. Like he would eat everything on the plate. Mm-hmm. And so she thought he's still hungry. Like he's eaten every little morsel, the poor guy. I'll put more on. So for 30 years, I shit you not, 30 years, she just put more and more and more and more on his plate. He got to a point like, you know, he got to a point where he's like, this is getting a little extra. Like, why do you always put so much? I can't eat so much. She said, but you always clear your plate. And he's like, yeah. So they finally, after 30 years, had this discussion where in one household, my father grew up with, you eat everything on your plate and you don't waste any food. Like that's disrespectful. So you eat, you clean your plate and you say thank you at the end, you know. Whereas my mum grew up in a household where if you were done and sated, you left a mouthful on the plate so that it was like an indicator that, yep, that was good, I'm done, thank you very much. So the fact that he wasn't leaving this little mouthful left, she's like, oh, poor guy, he's starving to death. Yeah. The fact that they couldn't communicate it with words, that it was this uh, non-verbal, very intense non-verbal communication around food too. They just played out, they just played out those patterns, those familial patterns. That's mostly what we're all doing. Unless unless you take a step back and you go, hang on, why do I do this behaviour or why is that important or you know, is this behavior serving me? If you don't take that step back and analyze it, most of us just run those old patterns. And parenting brings a lot of that out, doesn't it? Parenting changes relationships, I find, because it brings out suddenly our patterns with our parents. Suddenly there's this whole other level of stuff going on. Oh yeah. We've all had that moment where you, you hear yourself say something and you go, Oh God, I've turned into my mom. (laughs) You you say that phrase and you're like, Oh no. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you got to the end of the 10 years in ambulance and you thought this is what's giving me or given me PTSD. I'm just wondering if you feel as though you sort of gave yourself permission to have a breakdown. And the reason I'm asking you that question is because I feel like I did at a certain point when I got to the end of my father's life, when he had this long illness and it just got harder and harder and harder when Mm. he was living with us. And so I'd had years of various things, just hard work and children and relationship difficulties and just normal life but it just gets harder and harder and then seeing my father die and the the last couple of weeks of his life were really traumatic and difficult for everybody and I feel as though I did give myself permission to have a breakdown to go mental for a while like I just sort of said you know what babe you've earned it just go for it do you think you sort of said that to yourself or, or were you out of control? Did you ha- have no control over it? I, I understand you were getting your visitors when you're buying cheese mm. and you didn't have any control over that. But <laughs> <It's> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, first of all, like well done to you to have the, even the presence of mind to, to be able to stand outside of it for a second and go, you know what, this has been massive and I'm just going to crumble and that's okay. I do remember thinking, well, okay, this is happening. Down I go, but that's okay. You know what? I deserve it. That's what I remember thinking that. It's okay to fall apart. It's probably an area where I um, I struggle to walk my talk. I think we all, you know, it's not uncommon to have a different set of rules for yourself than other people and the expectations of yourself. And I'm definitely, definitely guilty of that. So Um, then is a breakdown your mind saying to you enough is is it a safety valve I don't know look to be honest I had very little insight I felt like Dorothy in the middle of the tornado and I was just like I was in it and and I've often said you know I was the last one to my own party (laughs) I came out of the the PTSD closet like I think I maybe I'll have a problem I need to talk to somebody and everyone else around me was like no shit love you've been horrible to live with for two years I'm like oh (gasps) I was tired I was exhausted physically and emotionally and Mm. every other which way and I was really really angry at everyone all the time for everything and uh, I assumed well the only reasonable expectation like answer for my anger was that everyone in the world was an asshole so oh yeah that's uh, clearly it's not me (laughs) it's that everyone out there is very annoying yeah look I think it is I think it is in some ways a pressure release valve. It's going to come to a head. Like if there's one thing I've learned through my own experience and then working in this space for five years is that it will come and bite you on the ass, you know, and you either choose to invite it and you allocate some time and you go, all right, I'm going to deal with my stuff and I'm going to work on myself and I'm going to take six months or 12 months or whatever it is and and I'm going to heal or you push it down, you push it down and you suppress and you just like function and, you know, like I was, it was one foot in front of the other. I had like, um, you know, racehorse blinkers on. I was like, mm. don't look sideways. Just what do I need to do today and just get it done. 
Um, and then, and then it happened anyway, and it happened yeah. without without my invitation, and it all came bubbling up when you know I didn't want it to. But there's just there's not a good time for a control freak like me. If there's a control freak listening, I would say if you want to do it on your own terms take the time and allocate some time and do it on your own terms because it's going to come anyway. What I think is there'll be a lot of women listening who'll be saying, yeah, I, I get it, Lisa, but where is the time? I yeah. have to work. I am making the money here in this household. I'm making the living. I'm taking care of my parents, my children, my pets, my partner. Where is mm. the time to do the work? And you're so right. If you don't do it on your own terms, it just comes up like, you know, COVID-19 anyway and slaps you in the face and says, well, guess what? It's happening yeah. anyway. You know, what's your advice to clients who say, mm. I don't have time to work on myself and help myself. How do they find that time and do it before it just smashes them down? Yeah. And I was like that too. At the time I was the breadwinner for my family. And yeah. I remember saying to myself, like, I can't not go to work just right. because I don't want to. I felt trapped. I felt helpless. And that's what was making me angry. I was trapped. I was helpless. I yeah. hated my life. And I felt like there's yeah. no one to help me. I'm helpless. Like you're just a part in a machine and you yeah. actually, and, and it's that, it's that lack of autonomy over your own life that mm. does lead to that frustration is like, well, you know, I don't have choice, you know, like my, my dear husband would say, just do what makes you happy. I'm like, yeah. I, I don't <laughs> even know what that is anymore. Like I have yeah. been a mum and, <laughs> and working and whatever for so long. I'm like, I don't know who I am if I'm yeah. not doing shit for other people. My advice would be to make time. Don't worry about booking in a psychologist. Don't worry about going to see a doctor. Start by reconnecting with yourself. You know, if you used to be an exerciser, make it exercise. For the love of God, if you've never been an exercise person, do not put that burden on yourself, all yeah. right? Find out what it is you like. It turns out I really like doing paint-by-numbers painting, right? Mm. Reconnecting with those things and discovering new things that you're like, oh, this makes my soul happy. Like my mission in the next few years is to move um, to the peninsula, to Mornington Peninsula, down by the bay, because I need yeah. to be near water. Like I've recognised that being near water makes me happy. But you've got to have those conversations with yourself and if you're going to make time for anything, um, make time for those things. The other thing I'd say about that is get really clear on what I was very confused about need and want. Mm. So when we're talking about what did you learn from your parents, I learned from my mum that you do what needs to be done, in mm. inverted commas, i.e. dishwashing, washing clothes, cleaning the kitchen, spraying, wiping the shit out of everything, right? That's what needs to be done. And then you can do what you want. Right. Yeah. Well, it's I a reward. Have, I have three children. Yeah. So you know what? In a household of five, that shit is never done. You never finish. You never you get never that finish. Time. There is always something to do. There's always clothes that need folding. There's always dishes that need putting away. And you yeah. know what? After you finish reading your book and after you finish putting on your damn face mask or having a bath or punching a bunch of pillows or, you know, whatever it is that you need to do for you, yoga, get on a call, talk to a friend, I don't care what it is, garden, right? After you've done that, that she will still be there what we haven't established is actually the steps that you took 
to outgrow your PTSD? After your three months, you know, did you create your own program? Did you follow someone else's program? Like what, what did you do? I'm going to explain it. I'm going to tell you a story of how I met my husband. So the way that I met my husband was I spoke to a colleague at work about how I was dating all these losers and, you know, <laughs> that couldn't find a decent guy and whatever. And he said to me, you just need to ask the universe to send you the perfect man for you. And I went, oh, right, that easy. If I'd known that, we'd done that three years ago. Like I did that and then he turned up and that was like 12 years ago. So I've always had this belief that the universe sends me the people I need. So I'll say the universe, I'm happy for people to label it whatever you want. I say the universe, you can call it energy, you can call it God, you can call it... Some people would call it manifesting. And when we we say that, and I'm an accidental manifester in that I know that I have manifested a lot of things in my life that I've wanted, but there are other things that I want that I haven't. I don't know how I do it when I do it. Would probably identify as an accidental manifester. I just like sometimes things fall my way and sometimes things don't. But I do have an inherent trust that I'll get what I need when I need it or when I'm ready Mm -hmm. for it. And I sat on the couch and I was there for three months like, okay, well, this is not working. I don't want to be a victim. I don't want to just wallow here in self-pity. And then I ended up having a few, I'd say three, apparently random conversations, um, sort of friends of friends, got onto a call with them, had a chat and said, look, you know, just one of them was involved in a, a network marketing company. And I was like, maybe like I was, I wanted to make money, go back to contributing to my family. Always the way it was, I had my money and I, I built a house on my own when I was single. Like, so I ended up on a conversation with a network marketing person and I, I need something to shift, but I don't know how or when or where. And they said, have you heard of NLP? So I got onto a coaching school about this thing called NLP, which I had no idea what it was. It stands for neuro-linguistic programming. And I remember the first class that I went into. So I went in, arms folded, you know, I can't exercise because I've got PTSD. I can't do this. I also had um, fibromyalgia for 20 years at the time as well. So like the physical aspects of trauma affected my body and I was constantly in pain. And so, you know, I was very good at, I can't sentences. I can't do this. I can't work and I can't exercise and I can't parent the way I want to because I have this, because I have that. And I sat in that class and the first thing that was basically explained as a concept on the board was this idea of cause and effect. And the teacher said, most of us, live our life at effect, right? There's cause and effect for everything. At effect means that, you know, when those people that turn up late to a meeting in the morning at the office and they go, sorry, I'm late. Yeah, you know, the traffic was really bad and because it was raining and everybody was driving really poorly. To live at cause, that person comes in and says, "Um, thank you for waiting. I should have left my house 10 minutes earlier when I saw it was raining. Being at cause is about ownership it's really important it's not about blame it's about owning it because then you can change it Mm. if you own it and you own your part of it and you say right yeah when I saw it was raining I really should have given myself another half an hour you can change that for next time Mm -hmm. right so it's an empowered position being at cause Mm. and that 
blew my mind. (laughs) You mean I have choice over my life because I'd been very at effect, you know, to, to, to diagnosis, to labels, to doctors, to medications, to my circumstances. I couldn't work anymore. Like my career ended not by my choice. So I felt very much like a leaf in the wind, just floating about, you know, like, Oh, I'll go this way. And now I'll go this way. Find the bit that you do have control over. So, you know, maybe it's putting aside something else to make time for you. Maybe it's, you know, I don't know, maybe maybe it's getting up half an hour earlier. I hate that, right? But mm-hmm. if you're a morning person, get up half an hour earlier. If you're a late person, stay up half an hour later mm-hmm. and then do your thing for you, right? Because you can own that bit. Mm. That cause and effect um, presentation exploded my brain. <laughs> and I realised, <laughs> my friend in Brisbane calls it braingasms, and just the idea that I had some choice over my life really began, kicked off an 18-month journey of empowerment, going, right, well, if I have choice, then I wouldn't choose this. (laughs) Like, I wouldn't choose being angry and I wouldn't choose yelling at my kids for no reason. I wouldn't choose being tired and depressed. And so I'm like, okay. And then the question was asked by my trainer, well, if you don't want this, what do you want instead? (sighs) My head exploded again. Because I realised I had focused all my energy on what I didn't want. Mm. I don't want to be angry. I don't want to be tired. I don't want to be um, sad. I don't want to miss my job. I don't want, I don't want, I don't want. And in terms of manifesting, your unconscious mind does not, uh, or the universe, does not hear the don't, right? So when you're like, I don't want to be fat anymore, <laughs> you mm. will go and buy a dozen donuts and eat them all right? Because your unconscious mind doesn't hear the negative. It doesn't hear don't. It can't filter that. So you keep drawing that stuff to you because what you focus on is what you get. So by shifting to like, oh my God, what do I want? And sitting there and thinking about it for a good couple of weeks, what do I want? Happy. So in coaching, we talk about chunks, right? Happy is a very high chunk, very high chunk. I want to be happy. Okay. So I, I, as a coach, I will ask questions that force specificity. Yeah. What does happy look like to you? Mm. How do you feel when you're happy? Where do you feel it in your body? How do you know you're happy? What has to be happening around you? What do you say to yourself when you're happy? So often happiness is involved with challenge and, mm. and growth and things that are really fucking hard, mm. like really hard. You know, and people talk about this journey of healing. like. I don't want to bullshit anybody. I can talk about it with you and, you know, this conversation has been amazing, but it's not sunshine and puppies and rainbows. Like Mm. it's really hard. There's that story about the lobster that grows too big for its shell and the shell cracks off and they shed a layer and then they're vulnerable as shit and they go and hide under a rock until that new layer hardens and they have a new shell that is much more representative of what healing from trauma is. It's hard and it hurts and you've got to be vulnerable for a period until you work out the new version of you. Mm. And that's really where that concept of outgrowing trauma comes from. I outgrew it. I don't need it anymore. I, I grew who I was beyond the confines of what those mental illness labels gave me. 
And like, I think it's really important. Like I'm, I'm not judging anyone for being where they are in their journey. Like for some people, those labels are super comforting because before they got told that they had a thing, they, they just think they're crazy or they don't fit in the world or their life is out of control or, you know, there's a story around that and then they get given a diagnosis and there is comfort within that. But there are people out there that are not happy like I was. I didn't find comfort in that diagnosis. To me, that was, I don't want to manage it. I just don't want to have it anymore. How do I not have it? And that was the journey I went on. So I just want to make it clear, I'm I'm really not judging anyone for for where you are. There is reason you're there, lots of reasons why you're there where you are. And some people will stay there and that's cool. That's, That's their journey and they will find what I have found in five years is those people that really love their label because that helps them make sense of their world. What I say can be confronting and can be challenging. To me, it's about functionality. Mm. It's all measured by functionality. You know, if you can have a diagnosis of depression, you take your meds and you can function to a level that you're happy with, that you can be a a parent or a colleague or a worker or, you know, whatever you want to do with your life and it helps you do that, then do that. That's awesome. The, The diagnosis was holding me back from functioning, not helping me function. And I wasn't the person I wanted to be with, with the labels, with the medication, with the whatever. I, like, honestly, if you want to rub crystals on your eyebrows or see a shrink or take meds or, um, I, you know, I don't care. <laughs> like, you do what works, find what works for you. And if I encourage anyone to do anything, it's go on the journey to find what works for you. And, and it's not going to be one thing. It's like a pieces of the puzzle. You know, I, I've never found one person that's like, oh, I did this one thing and it changed my life. <laughs> no, you know, it feels like, you, you know, you, you're constantly evolving. We all are. Emma Hamlin put together a book called Change Makers. It's 22 <laughs> women telling their stories. And it's become an international bestseller. I, I think it's such a unique opportunity. Um, I'm a huge advocate of of storytelling and mm. storytelling, particularly in the mental health space. There is, I'm going to, I'm going to butcher it, but there's a Marianne Williamson quote <laughs> about essentially it's not the darkness inside of us that we're afraid of. It's the light. And by shining our own light, allowing that to shine, we give permission for others to shine theirs. And, and that's fundamental to my philosophy around everything. That's why I'm talking to you. That's why, you know, I get interviewed on radio. That's why I, I'll, speak in front of a group of doesn't matter how many people is because I think if I can get up on stage or I can write a chapter in a book that tells my story and that helps one in a hundred people have a conversation with a loved one or their manager or you know whoever else that they really need to have that quiet little chat with and it gives them permission to do that then it's worthwhile. Changemakers, the book, was such a great opportunity for me to share elements of my story on obviously a, a global platform. We've been so lucky. The, the book has gone um, bestseller in, I think it's UK, US, France uh, and Australia. So, yeah, it was just such a lovely platform. And Emma's, uh, Emma's an amazing lady and she's putting together a, a third edition of Changemakers. I think it's right. about 25 women. Any, any way that I can help others 
be okay with telling their story because that's really how we break down stigma. That's how we make it okay to have the conversations is by having the conversations. Can I ask when in the process, or I should ask if, the visitors stopped coming to you? I went, I saw a psychologist for um, a few months specifically for those visitors and I went through a process called EMDR, used the therapy called EMDR. Which um, one's that? Is that the tapping? That's that's the um, eye movement back and forth. Oh, so it's yeah. eye movement desensitization re something or other and um it's essentially getting the left and right brain to process so it mimics REM sleep as far as my understanding goes so you know when you're dreaming and your eyes go left and right that's the two hemispheres of your brain processing those memories so that they can store it in long-term storage and not on the front of your dashboard so oh, that, wow. So it's sort of what you're doing when you're dreaming. So it mimics that. So some of them, they'll get you to watch their finger or there's an auditory cue, like a left and right auditory cue that basically uses the two halves of the brain to process the memories. Look, it's also very similar to what I what I later learned as an NLP process that I use. There, There's an NLP process that's referred to as like the movie theatre or... Um, yeah, we'll call it the movie theatre process, but it's also a left and right eye movement process that we use in NLP to process trauma. Essentially, all those modalities are removing the emotional attachment to the memory. Mm. So it's not the memory that changes. The memory is what the memory is. Mm. Um, And obviously, being in the past, we can't do anything about it because it already happened. But what causes you the anger or the frustration or the upsetness or the reliving or whatever is your emotional tether to that event. So if you can change the emotions related to it, or you can change the meaning that you've created around the event, that's how you move it on. So what was the meaning that you had attached to uh, other people's traumatic death? PTSD is sometimes referred to as a moral injury. Okay. So um, particularly in, uh, usually in reference to military that are just following orders and they have to do something that they don't actually morally agree with. Having to be involved in an event or a situation that uh, clashes with your values, clashes with your own moral compass. The probably the, the, the biggest, you know, most traumatic job that I guess left me with with the most residual negative effects was a murder-suicide and there was two children in the house. So they weren't hurt physically but they were essentially witnesses to the passing of their mother at someone else's hand. There's a lot of moral injury in that, you know, there's a lot of unjustness in that. And I think in, in my case it was that feeling of... You know, it's the same feeling we get, I'm sure, when a lot of us hear about, you know, uh, someone being, someone's life being taken in family violence. You know, those sorts of things where we go, it just doesn't sit right. Like there's just no, there's nothing in that that feels okay. There's nothing. And we can't stop thinking about it for days and all of that. Yeah, yeah. and it's that, it's that inherent injustice in those acts, in those particular types of deaths that I think affect us more because there is no, you know, as much as a loved one passing 
at the end of a terrible illness, okay, it's awful. Yeah. But it's on some level they're at peace now or their pain has stopped or, you know, we can somehow find a level of it sort of, it mutes it a little bit. It's still awful. Yeah, but the moral for me, the moral um, where it didn't make sense with my morals was Mm. in the final days of my father's life he was oh what's that word delirious Mm. and so it was wasn't dignified and it was horrible and it was creepy and it was scary and yeah and I remember thinking and saying all the time he would hate this you know we don't let animals he and I both big big animal lovers and I remember saying we would never let an animal suffer like this he and I would never let an animal suffer like this yeah just don't how how do we do this to people yeah how do we allow people to just linger like this you know yeah so you're right and then there's that injustice in that that's what sits and stirs and if you don't manage it if you don't deal with it it, it, you know sometimes it all sometimes it lessens over time and sometimes it 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 festers it took me months and I really I mean this is the first time I've been able to understand it like obviously it was terrible but yeah, you've you've helped me to understand why it was so traumatic, and I did feel it was like a PTSD. I did feel like it was that level of of trauma, absolutely. But I, I I've just made another observation when you were talking about the murder suicide. Your eyes were flicking from left to right as you were talking about it. Is that connected with the therapy? IQs are fascinating. Um, IQs and where people's eyes go when they talk is something that we I teach as part of the NLP. So I'm now uh, an NLP trainer. There's lots of folklore about it. You know, if people look up into the right, then they're you know yeah. lying to you. And it's not. I that- thought it was if we look up, it we're intellectual, we're thinking, and if we look down, we're emotional or something like that. But is it more complicated than that? It's yeah. There's a bit more finesse. Yeah, okay. it's a bit more complicated. Yeah, essentially, left and right, you're just accessing. Um, visual memories and and so you're so high up is quite visual um Mm. so when people look up and left and up and right it's they're sort of picturing things Mm. so they're either picturing things that they've already pictured or they're making up new pictures so if I asked you you know so the classic question would be what was the color of your bedroom when you're a child yeah, yeah, do I look up? Yeah. So you look up and left, but then if yeah. I say to you, now imagine that the walls were lime green in that bedroom. You're right, I look up and right. Yeah. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. Cool. So we've got different cues. So can you give us an indicator of where where in the brain somebody's looking for information? Then if they do, if you do um, sort of uh, straight on left and right rather than up, it's very auditory. So remember your favourite Beatles song? What is your favourite Beatles song? Which is quite just straight left. Um, Mm. And now imagine that song is sung by Donald Duck. (laughs) I looked straight right. Yeah. And it's funny. Yeah. And then there's down. One is is your like processing where you'll keep like a shopping list or you do time tables. It's sort of um, one side on the bottom and then the other side on the bottom is your feelings. So, you know, tell me what it felt like when and you'll drop your eyes. Yeah. I so, want to do your course, Lisa. <laughs> Tell us. Come and do I, the course. It's okay. at the end of October. I love it. And this is why I, I got so passionate about it because it m- helped me make sense of the world I live in. Thank you so much for your time. You've blown my mind. Excellent. You have totally blown my mind, man. You offer 
courses, you offer counselling, right? Um, yes, yeah, so I probably refer to myself as a trauma recovery coach. Okay. I haven't done a counselling degree. Um, obviously, okay. we get a little bit of that sort of stuff in paramedic training yeah. in uh, ye olden days when I did that. Yeah, look, I'm not a counsellor. I don't... The, the way that I describe it, so <sighs> counselling and traditional talk therapies are very much based on where are you now and let's move backwards let's go you know so tell me about your childhood or tell me about that event that happened in the past and there is an element of that but that's not the focus coaching is typically um where are you now and where do you want to be you know going back to that well what do you want yeah getting really clear about that and then who do you have to be to get that and what do you have to say to yourself to get that and who has that and what do you think they say to themselves mm. when they wake up in the morning yeah so and you- I always say why not you that's always my that's my mantra why not me like I'm I'm human they're just human they did it why can't I why not me so much easier to see it in someone else than yourself one of my favorite stories about the Dalai Lama is he was giving a teaching to a small group of Westerners and a man stood up to ask a question and his question was, what can I do about self-loathing? And his holiness didn't understand the question and he asked his translator, what did he mean? And and there's this back and forth, back and forth, <laughs> back and forth. And it took them so long and until they realised, no, it's not that he doesn't understand. They're not trying to find the words in Tibetan. Like he literally does not understand the concept of loathing yourself he literally can't and I mean he ended up in in fits of giggles he as he he often does yeah right (laughs) he just had to laugh and he had to say I'm so sorry but I just what do you mean yeah it's so foreign it's so foreign and that's it you can't you can't understand what you haven't already experienced lisawestgate.com is where you can find out about everything we've talked about today and a lot more besides. There's a link in the show notes to this episode and also on my Facebook page. Thank you for downloading this episode of the Nitty Gritty Committee. I'll be back next week. And if you or someone you know would be a great guest, please let me know through Facebook. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.